Hi everyone, welcome to season two of Project Quarantines. This is an episode of a three-part series where I interviewed Dr. Samantha Yauzi, a professor of biological anthropology at Utah State University. In our episodes, we first travel to the past to understand what biological anthropology is and its importance. Then we learn about the present challenges in combating misinformation and what we can do to prevent it. And finally, we discuss the future of pandemics, public health measures, and vaccines. Please like and share, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi everyone, I'm here with Dr. Samantha Yauzi. She's a biological anthropology professor at Utah State University, and her work examines a lot of biological and bioarchaeological evidence for finding origins of diseases. So Dr. Yauzi, it's great to have you on. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's get into it. What started your interest into the field of bioanthropology? So I did not, I didn't have an interest in biological anthropology or bioarchaeology until fairly late in college. Um, I took a lot of classes in biology and I took a few classes in archaeology. Um, and I realized after a fair bit of studying that um, there was a field that actually combined the two of them. So I ended up going to grad school for biological anthropology, specifically bioarchaeology, um, and studying the medieval Black Death first um, and the, the time around that period. And then later on, I, I studied the industrial period in England. Um, and all of it was just having an interest in humans, having an interest in um, what people's lives were like that potentially weren't recorded um, in history. So that kind of led into my next question, but why do you think it's such an important field to study? I think biological anthropology is important because does give us that view on past lives. There's a lot that um, that historians didn't record or that people didn't think was important at the time or, or people weren't important. And so having this opportunity to use human skeletal remains to learn about people in the past, particularly those voices that were missing um, is very important to me. So, for example, um, one of the one of the major biological anthropology projects that's taking place right now that's getting a lot of attention is Dr. Phoebe Stubblefield's work on the Tulsa race massacre in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And there's been a hundred years of silence on this um, this massacre that occurred and potentially hundreds of people died and their stories, their narratives were never recorded by historians and we've just ignored them for decades. Um, so what Dr. Stubblefield is doing, and, and she's a forensic anthropologist, which is a type of biological anthropologist, 
is she's trying to locate and study the remains of people who died during that massacre to give their stories a voice. And that's true of lots of bioarchaeological projects. Um, we want to know about the lives of people in the past, including people that weren't considered interesting and weren't considered important. So they weren't, they aren't going to be found in written documents and we can use biological anthropology to kind of flesh out history, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, and that's why, I, to me at least, bioarchaeology is so important. Now, what types of tools do you use when you're constructing these stories in bioarchaeology? And I also heard that you're not just in like a whole range of bioarchaeology. There's a specific subfield that you're very interested in. Do you mind talking about that as well? Sure. So specifically, I am what we would call a paleopathologist or a paleoepidemiologist. And paleopathologists study, or they're a type of bioarchaeologist that studies disease in the past using human skeletal remains. And then paleoepidemiologists do the same thing, but um, they do it, they, they study disease at the population level. Um, so similar to what you would think of a modern epidemiologist doing, but just for the past and using human bone to study that. And so one of the things that we do when we are um, studying or examining skeletal remains is to look for markers on the bones or lesions that, that signify disease or trauma or just an infection in general. So bone, which is like any other tissue in the body, is going to either look normal or abnormal. And so if we see abnormal markers or indicators on the skeleton, our job then at that point is to try and nail down what caused that abnormality. And so we go through this very specific process known as differential diagnosis. And that helps us identify the lesion and sort through different diseases or processes that could have caused that particular skeletal marker. So we ask ourselves a lot of questions, um, things like, what does the skeletal abnormality look like? You know, is it smooth? Is it rough? We ask about what the dimensions are. Is it a very large skeletal lesion or is it relatively small? Um, we want to know where it's located. We want to know how it's distributed throughout the rest of the skeleton. You know, is it just in, is it localized in one spot or is it distributed throughout the skeleton? And that's going to point to different types of diseases or causes of that abnormal lesion. The unfortunate thing with paleopathology is that differential diagnosis isn't foolproof. So we can't always nail down or trace back a lesion back to a specific disease. So we absolutely look at diseases in the past, but there are some cases where we find skeletal lesions that um, are just caused by infection generally or by trauma generally. And we can't say for sure, oh, this was tuberculosis or oh, this was syphilis or leprosy or something like that. We just have to say, well, 
they were in poor health at some point because they have this lesion. So do you have any thoughts on specific diseases or have you done research on a particular disease or outbreak that involves your practices with paleopathology? So I have not personally, since I usually study, um, usually study disease and health on the population level, but there are plenty of bioarchaeologists and, and paleopathologists who study very specific diseases. So for example, um, tuberculosis is a one because we can usually identify that with, um, with fairly good accuracy. Um, there are also bioarchaeologists who study syphilis, which leaves very specific lesions in specific places on the skeleton. So that's usually easy to spot. Um, and then there are a few other diseases, things like leprosy, that we can, and a few different cancers as well, that we can usually narrow it down and figure out what those those particular diseases were, what, what disease that person had. All right. So you said you'd go more into the population aspect of disease. Is there any particular historical populations that you've looked at before? Yes. So... One of the big ones that I've looked at is medieval England. And one of the major occurrences in medieval England in the 14th century was the Black Death. And so I have spent a fair amount of time um, looking at skeletons from a particular sample that spans the entire period before the Black Death occurred, during the Black Death, and then after the Black Death. So we're able to look at changes in that population over time. So what is one of the most valuable lessons you've learned from studying the Black Death and the effect on the population? I would say it probably connects back to that um, that initial you know, question that you had about the importance of bioarchaeology, at least to me. And that was knowing the stories of people in the past and knowing um, who is at risk of certain things. And one, one thing that, um, one thing that's been more and more clear as, as we do more and more research is that there's no such thing as an indiscriminate killer. And what I mean by that is that no disease kills everyone equally. You know, there's always going to be vulnerable subsets of the population who are at greater risk of death compared to the peers. And that's been true in every past pandemic that we know of, and it continues to be true today. So learning how some of those past pandemics, for me, particularly the Black Death, targeted certain groups in a population that's going to tell us a lot about life in the past. And that in itself is interesting. Um, but also studying the Black Death has given us an opportunity to think about who those vulnerable or at-risk populations might be in a future pandemic and in a pandemic today. So that's incredibly useful information. Also with the, the Black Death, 
There's a lot of new and emerging public health measures such as quarantines and social distancing that occurred during that time. Would you say that had any effect on the population as a whole and its control over how much the disease spread across Europe? Yes, absolutely. So um, there were some populations. Um, okay, well, let me back up. So the the disease itself um, hit the population in 1346 and started spreading all over Europe writ large. The first area or region that recognized that there was a serious disease outbreak occurring was actually Italy. And so they were the first ones to um, establish what we would recognize as quarantine measures at the time. So in about 1348, um, Italy started up this practice of quarantine and we actually get the name quarantine from the Italians. Um, it's based off the word quaranta, which is Italian for 40. And they had the idea that um, disease was spread by a miasma, which is essentially just polluted bad air. And so they thought, um, using the Bible as a reference, that the time needed for that miasma, that pollution to dissipate off of a sick person or off of their belongings was 40 days and 40 nights. So they instituted this practice of physically separating out people who were sick and restricting the air that they could pollute, essentially. Um, and they would keep them in either their homes or in purpose-built hospitals. And that seriously limited who they could interact with and therefore who they could transmit that disease to. Um, and so some areas that quickly implemented those quarantine measures actually did very, very well. Um, they limited the um, they limited the spread of the disease. They limited the regional impact of the disease in terms of how many people died. But then there are other areas, such as the areas I study, like England, who didn't bother implementing quarantine measures until the 17th century. So. 300 years later um, and they didn't do as well so they had more people dying because they weren't recognizing that the more people can travel the more people can interact the more people are going to get sick and the more people are going to die thank you dr yosi for an amazing interview and a special thanks to all of the listeners Please stay tuned for upcoming episodes, and I hope you all have a great day.